0: Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. With increasing urgency, climate scientists and environmentalists have sought to mobilize public action to address the crisis of global warming. Warning us about the dire need to radically change how we use energy, the ways we grow and distribute food, and many other activities, they've described a future in which our planet is increasingly unlivable. But beyond imagining a world devastated by unchecked greenhouse gas emissions, how might we go about imagining more desirable futures? What resources can we call upon to help us not only avoid disaster, but craft a better world? My guest today is Joni Adamson, professor of environmental humanities at Arizona State University and a fellow this year at the National Humanities Center. She is working on just these questions, pulling together threads of work with which she has been engaged for most of her career. Welcome to this podcast, Joni.
1: Thank you for having me. In your work, um, you
0: look at literature that has been produced by global indigenous communities. Talk to us a little bit about the kinds of literature that you're looking at and what it means for your work.
1: So I'm looking at literature that is written by writers such as Linda Hogan, Scott Mamaday, Simon Ortiz. And just to give you one example, I'll talk just briefly about Linda Hogan's People of the Whale. In People of the Whale, she's talking about, she's fictionalizing, really, the Macaw community's fight to take back some of their traditions. And one of the main characters is an indigenous fisher woman who is very, very familiar with the ocean. And so she understands that the warming ocean is having a devastating effect on the land. And so the book looks at all kinds of things from the impacts on the octopus to impacts on the whales to the relationship of humans and whales. And Linda Hogan is a writer who has long worked not just as a creative writer, a writer of fiction, but also with the National Geographic. So she's literally gone on voyages with National Geographic to trace the routes of the whales from Baja, Mexico, all the way up to the Arctic. And so she's a very, very knowledgeable ethno-scientist, very, very knowledgeable about changing environmental conditions. And so she writes about these changing environmental conditions in her novels. And I teach these novels in my classrooms to help make my students more aware of what's happening, but also because it gives them actual images and scenarios that they can see in their heads as they read the novel and understand the impacts of these changing conditions. But also it helps them imagine what they might do in response. So instead of climate change being this abstract concept, they read the novel, they see what the characters are doing, how the characters respond, what the characters' arguments and um, concerns are. And in reading those... um, novels, they're able to sort of imagine their own response um, in their everyday lives.
0: I know you also look at how ancient cosmologies or imaginings of the world and humans and other creatures' places in that world, what those might look like. Talk to us a little bit about how ancient cosmologies are finding their way into
1: newer retellings and, and creative works. So one example I might give you is of the word pachamama. Most people have a sense that this is roughly translated into the word Mother Earth. But if you trace the word pachamama all the way down to its indigenous roots in Latin America, what you find is that pachamama doesn't actually translate as a gendered being. Rather, pachamama translates as either source of life or source of light And so if you think about the meaning of source of light and you connect that to all the sort of photosynthetic processes that literally give life to plants and therefore to our food sources, you can see that when they talk about the word Pachamama, they're not necessarily talking about a gendered being, but rather this whole system of understandings of how the world works in relationship um, to humans but also how humans uh, work in relationship to plants and animals and how all of the beings who people the planet actually have a relationship. So these concepts like Pachamama or Sachamama or Yakamama, which means mother of all waters or mother of the forest, they're finding their way into some of these contemporary novels that I'm talking about and or documentary films. And people are recovering these understandings of these early cosmological what I sometimes call scientific indigenous literacies, as a way of better understanding um, our world. And one of the things that I also like to explain is that if you understand that Pachamama means source of life, source of light, then you can see that it's actually sort of a very concise way of conveying all of that photosynthesis and human relationship to plants and animals, et cetera. Um, So Pachamama is just a very concise scientific indigenous literacy. So by bringing it into a novel, um, whether you're Linda Hogan or whether you're another indigenous uh, writer, you are sort of bringing that really concise understanding, or, or, or I should say rather really complex understanding into a concise turn of phrase mm-hmm.
0: so when we think about western science we often think of it as opposed to indigenous forms of knowledge or or maybe that indigenous peoples might be resistant to scientific knowledge, but you actually make a case that that is, that that's not the case. And in particular, I know that when you um, discuss debates around genetically modified organisms, you really push back against that dichotomy. Talk to us a little bit about what the role is of scientific knowledge versus the indigenous communities that you're looking at and how they're reacting to it.
1: To explain this question, I think what I'll do is start just very briefly with how I came to study indigenous literatures. In my graduate um, days, I was asked to teach a class that was exclusively for Native American um, freshmen. And for the next nine years, I exclusively taught Native American freshmen um, at the University of Arizona. This was a really unique opportunity for me. I was literally the only Anglo person in the room. And so I was the teacher, but I was learning so much. We were reading indigenous literatures. We were reading um, poetry and novels by people like Simon Ortiz and Leslie Marmon Silko. But they grew up on the reservation, and so they had so much um, to teach me. And so the reason why I push back is because in those days, I heard so many stories, so, so many stories of my students telling me about how their grandparents or their parents had been sent away to a boarding school. And even though those parents and grandparents had had really horrifying experiences, all kinds of things, being denied their languages, having their hair cut, having their um, names taken away, being given Anglo names. Nevertheless, their those grandparents and parents always told their children, we want you to go to school. We want you to go to school. Education is so, so important. So that's why they were all there, because even though their relatives had, had these horrifying experiences, they still wanted their um, their cousins and their um, grandchildren and their children to get an education and so as I look back on the careers of those students that were my students in those classes they've become doctors medical doctors they've become lawyers Um, some of them have participated in land rights and water rights um, cases in front of um, the Supreme Court, and during that time, several of the tribes in um, Arizona have actually won back some of their water rights and are revivifying their agricultural ways and their food ways and things like that. And so they're very, very keen to know about science, to know about medicine. But for example, those that became doctors, um, they will learn about Western medicine, but at the same time, they'll bring their traditional medicines into, into the examining room and or, you know, the, the hospital room. And so it's, it's the case today that sometimes you'll notice that in hospitals, for example, in Arizona, um, there'll be the operating room in which you would expect Western science, Western medicine to be um, very important, but there might be another room in which um, a medicine person might come in and that might be a room in which the whole family can gather and also, and so there's this idea that bringing the two together can be a really good and strengthening thing and I, I would say that that is the case with cl- climate science as well. The activists and scholars who are indigenous that I work with today, they'll always say you know, that what we need to do is we need to be listening to indigenous people because they have experienced dramatic environmental changes for over 500 years. For them, this is not a new thing. It's just, as my friend Kyle White likes to say, it's deja vu. For them, it's deja vu. So, so Western science is important. It's... Um, you know, we learn a lot from Western science, but we also can learn a lot from indigenous um, knowledges and um, scientific literacies, and just the ways in which these communities under siege for over 500 years have conducted themselves and survived, um, and in many cases today um, are thriving. Both together is is something that can be stronger than either or.
0: Really powerful. Um, And in terms of thinking about futures and and thinking about where things are headed, especially as we face um, this threat of climate change, of rapid climate change, how would the work that you're doing help us imagine a livable future in light of these sort of imminent
1: threats? So one of the things that I'm talking about in this project, um, this book project that I'm writing now, is this long, what I'm going to call climate canon? Because recently, I'd say since 2000, there's been this sort of rapid emergence of this new genre that's kind of a subgenre of science fiction, but it's being called climate fiction or cli-fi. And um, I'm arguing that this is just the latest addition to a long, long canon of works in which people have been thinking about human relationship to weather, human relationship even to climate. Anciently, people were very good astronomers. They understood the relationship of of the Earth to the moon, and they understood the relationship of the Earth and the moon and the, the seasons and the planets. Um, they could read the sky um, as well as look at their soil. So they understood the relationship between the sky, the sun, the soil, and agriculture and food and, you know, um, being able to survive. Um, And so I like to point out that if you look in ancient almanacs, everything from the Popovu, which is the Mayan uh, creation story, to uh, the farmer's almanacs in the early 16th and 17th centuries in America, they're full of these cosmological relationships. They trace out these cosmological and agricultural relationships. And so Cli-fi, or climate fiction, is only just the latest, what I'll say, is addition to this canon of humans looking at the relationship between humans' weather and humans' and the climate, um, so weather being what's happening today and climate being what happens in patterns over the long term. But I um, am using cli in my own classrooms because, as I said earlier in the earlier answer, this is a way for students to imagine how they might respond in the future. And several authors, like, for example, pa- Paolo Bacigalupi, who has written two of the most well-known uh, climate fictions, which are uh, The Water Knife and The Wind-Up Girl. The Wind-Up Girl is about food and food systems in the future, and The Water Knife is about a, a water war in the west it's actually set in phoenix arizona where i'm where i live and teach when my students read um the water knife which is set only 50 years in the future they can imagine everything because everything he writes about it's the subdivisions outside of of phoenix arizona it's the water rights um the canals um and he writes about all this but he sets it in this context which is indeed in the future but it's also about the past because it's, it's asking, why, why did we know all of this information about the Colorado River and about drought in the West, and why did we not do anything over the course of all of these decades? And so he wants students to read that novel and literally sort of ask, why didn't we do this 50 years ago, and can we do something now? And in fact, they do do this when they read the the novel. They they sit back and go, this is making me think. It's kind of scary, but what I do is I like to teach uh, my classes in the context of the amazing technologies that are available to us today with which we could turn everything around if we just had the political will. So whether that's solar or other kinds of alternative energy systems, um, each of us are, when I when I say each of us, I mean professors. Most professors are working in universities in which scientists and um, social scientists are all working on projects that literally are. Creating the technologies, or in some cases we already have the technologies, to turn this around. So now we just need to figure out why, if we have these technologies, are we not making the choice to use them? Or why, if we knew all about the Colorado River, why did we not change the way we're using water uh, 50 years ago? So that's what the humanities can do. The humanities can help us think about humans and why they do things. Human motivations, behaviors, and desires, that's sort of the province of the humanities. And so that's another thing I'll be talking about in the book is why the humanities are crucial to figuring out why humans do the things they do or why they don't do the things they do and how we might change now and in the near future so that we might have survivable, livable desirable futures instead of apocalyptic ones, which are essentially what you find in, in these sci-fi and cli-fi novels, apocalyptic futures that hopefully we can avoid.
0: Mm-hmm. And the past is now, right? And the past is now, <laughs> yes. Um, so how do your students respond? I mean, do you feel that this galvanizes action? How is this received by this young generation?
1: I have to say this young generation is pretty fired up and it could be that my classes which all have the word environmental environmental literature and film in the in in the title it could be that an interested actively interested group of students is to, are taking the classes I usually team up my classes by teaching documents from UN sustainability conferences with Documentaries, um, some of which are just so powerful, from Food Inc., which most people have seen, to Blue Water, which looks at everything from why we're draining our aquifers to the ways in which we're literally bottling water from our aquifers into plastic and then the plastic is finding its way into the ocean. They're very, very fired up about plastic, you know, and getting rid of plastic out of the oceans and. Trying to not use plastic bottles as part of the solution, and they're very fire, fired up about the politics of it. They're very aware, it seems to me, of our elections, our, our um, electoral system, and our—you uh, know—how how we might use democracy to to bring about some positive changes for climate. So I would say that in my classes, which are environmental classes, I see a lot of excitement and. Um, positive response to, to doing concrete things in the world as a result of reading these fictions and watching these films. That is very heartening to hear.
0: I want to go back to one thing you just briefly mentioned, um, which is the octopus. And I know that you have a chapter in your book where you talk about films and fiction that talk about the octopus. Talk to us a little bit about what we can learn from this work and, and what kind of the
1: role of the octopus in our imagination is people are increasingly aware of how smart the octopus is. And by the way, the plural of that word is octopuses. Okay. <laughs> what did I say? Like no, no, you didn't say it wrong, but I always tell people this. it's not The plural is not octopi. It's octopuses because it is a Greek root and not a Latin root. Um, and so uh, people are increasingly aware, I think, that octopuses – Are very very intelligent that they can, that they play, that they have ways of communicating, uh, usually through gradients of light. You know, they'll either light themselves up, or through maybe um, shooting out uh, a squirt of ink. And these are all these really complex ways of, quote unquote, communicating. There's this increasing idea, or I should say, study of. Um, a f- the field of biosemiotics. Semiotics is the study of language, but biosemiotics would be biological languages. And the octopus is just a really wonderful creature for thinking about um, the languages of non humans. And so um, octopuses have um, these smaller microscopic, either, you know, bacteria in their body, and just by controlling oxygen, they can increase or decrease. Um, the bioluminescence and so literally they're what's called a superorganism because they're not just controlling themselves but they're controlling other organisms within themselves and in that way sort of communicating with other creatures ar- around them as well but humans are sort of super orga- organisms too because we have this whole system of flora uh, in our stomachs and if it if it isn't balanced or, you know, um, working correctly, um, our digestive systems um, won't work correctly. And so the octopus is just a really wonderful creature for talking about ways that we might rethink what we mean when we say what it means to be human. If we say that what it means to be human is to speak a human language, uh, well, maybe we need to rethink that. So whether it's the octopus or the elephant or other charismatic megafauna, or whether it's a bacteria in the soil, you know, or or the roots of trees, um, famously, you know, with Richard Powers' uh, recent novel, um, Overstory, we know a lot more about how trees literally communicate, not just with their own species, but with all of the woody other species on the forest floor. Um, we we can just start learning more about the communicative capabilities of non-humans and thus sort of rethink the way we we understand ourselves in relationship to our planet mates. Thank you,
0: Joni. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.